Today we continue our five-part sermon series entitled High Five, Five Sermons from the Last Five Years. Coming in at number two is a message that was preached on December the 3rd, 2017, entitled The World's Toughest Prayer. It's a prayer that was originally found on the lips of Jesus. It's a prayer that ought to be found on the lips of every Christ follower. It is with that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As this morning, I want to read in your hearing Matthew, chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Matthew, chapter 26, I'll begin reading at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us go. For here comes my betrayer. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. If you will allow me to set the stage of our story. Jesus has already triumphantly entered the streets of Jerusalem to the thunderous applause of the crowd, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is Judas Iscariot who has already agreed to hand over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver as foretold in the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. The disciples have already prepared the upper room for it is there that they will observe the Passover meal, remembering how God faithfully and dramatically liberated their forefathers from Egyptian captivity and out of the clutches of Pharaoh. And Jesus has already presided over the meal, instituted what you and I call the Lord's Supper, identified Judas as his betrayer, and also stated that all of his disciples will fall away on account of him this night, including the Apostle Peter. As the evening hours unfold, the drama intensifies. Jesus takes the 11 remaining disciples. They go outside the city gate of Jerusalem. They go up the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he tells them, sit here 
while I go over there and pray. He takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further into the garden. And it's there that we read that Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow and trouble. On this night, Jesus is experiencing a deeper sorrow than even what he felt that day he stood in front of the tomb of his BFF, Lazarus. On this night, Jesus is experiencing a deeper sorrow than even he felt just days earlier as he looked upon the holy city of Jerusalem and declared, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. On this night, Jesus has a deep sorrow and he feels great trouble. The word sorrowful means to be crushed by anguish. The word trouble can be defined as terrible misery. In this moment of darkness and loneliness, Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He is feeling, uh, experiencing grief and tragedy and trouble in his very soul. The case could be made that Jesus is stressed out. In fact, some could say that Jesus is experiencing a a stress-induced anxiety attack. Now, for some of us, the thought of Jesus being anxious seems so far-fetched. We say to ourselves, Jesus is completely God, and you're exactly right. Jesus is completely God. He never ceased being completely God. And at the same time, he is completely human. It's a paradox It's hard for us to wrap our mind around it, yet it is biblically, factually true that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. He is the only sufficient substitute for you and for me, for he is God, so he can offer the substitute. He is human, so he could be our substitute. It is only Jesus who could successfully accomplish your salvation and mine. And in this moment, on this night, Jesus feels overwhelming sorrow and trouble. It is Luke in his gospel who tells us that Jesus goes a stone's throw away. He kneels to pray. It is Matthew who says that Jesus, going a little farther, fell on his face to the ground and he prayed. When you put those two pictures together, you realize that Jesus is overwhelmed by the magnitude of the massive moment. For at first, he kneels to pray. Only seconds later, feeling the weight of the moment, he collapses with his face to the ground and he prays. Once again, it's Dr. Luke who tells us that Jesus began to sweat drops of blood that fell to the ground. The medical condition is rare, yet it's quite possible. It's called hematidrosis. Even today, medical doctors concur that hematidrosis occurs and takes place when the capillaries right under the skin of the forehead and temple region begin to swell and burst. And many times they swell and burst because of stress. And when that takes place, the sweat glands secrete a mixture of blood and sweat. So on this night, it is quite possible we have no reason to doubt the Bible When Dr. Luke, a physician by trade, says that as Jesus was praying in that moment, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Now, you and I know what it is to be stressed out, don't we? I mean, we are inundated with stress. We are stressed by money and the mortgage. We're stressed by paying the car bills and the utility bills. We are overcome with stress by the family and the future and finances by our spouse and our children. We are overcome by stress when it comes to sickness and sadness and tragedy and even COVID-19. It would appear that at every turn, at every place, we have stress that's always coming down the pike. You and I know what it is to be stressed out. Yet I dare say that none of us know what it is to sweat drops of blood onto the ground. Jesus is experiencing enormous suffering, sorrow, misery. And the question is, why? Why is Jesus so stressed out in this moment? I don't think the answer is because he is fearful of the physical pain he's about to endure. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think Jesus is real excited about the physical pain he will experience over the next 18 hours. For Jesus knows that right around the corner will be a beating that, and a whipping that will leave him half dead. He understands that the physical pain will be enormous. He will be unrecognizable. He'll look like a, a mangled mass mess of flesh. Jesus will be spit upon and ridiculed. He'll be punched in the face. His beard will be plucked out. He'll be stripped of clothes. He will be stretched wide and nailed to a cross of wood. Yes, the physical pain that Jesus will endure over the next few hours, it is excruciating. But I don't think it's the physical pain that stresses out Christ as much as the spiritual pain. For Jesus knows that for the first time ever in eternity past, never to be repeated again in eternity future, he will experience a momentary severing, splintering of the Trinitarian relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Jesus knows that as he dangles precariously on a cross made of wood, he will absorb upon himself an eternity's worth of condemnation for your sins and mine that God the Father will squeeze into a few-hour window an eternity's worth of hell that you and I should experience, and it will be meted out squarely upon Jesus, and Jesus knows the spiritual reality that he who knew no sin will become sin for us, and that God God the Father will turn his face away from God the Son, causing the Son to declare, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is this prospect of being God forsaken that Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is something that's never happened before. It'll never happen again. The idea that God will be forsaken by God, that God the Father will turn his face away from God the Son is something that is so overwhelming to Jesus that as he contemplates this, as he thinks about this, he is overwhelmed with sorrow. It, it crushes him to his face to the ground, and he prays. Now, in this moment, Jesus does not deny God. He does not disobey God. He doesn't doubt God. Jesus prays to God. And friend, there is a great lesson in that. When stress comes rumbling at you, when you are inundated and overwhelmed with 
debilitating stress that paralyzes you in that moment, do not deny God. In that moment, do not disobey God. In that moment, do not doubt God's goodness and his love. In that moment, follow the lead of Jesus. Jesus prayed. Yes, I know that God is praying to God. In that moment, God the Son prays to God the Father. And yet when you experience stress that is overwhelming, you follow the lead of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you simply pray unto God. In this moment, Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. This morning, I want you to notice two components of that prayer. First, raw sincerity. Second, radical submission. In raw sincerity, Jesus prayed, if it's possible, Take this cup from me. And yet in radical submission, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed with raw sincerity. If it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want you to misunderstand Jesus. Jesus does not, not want to save sinners. Jesus is simply asking, is there another way for us to redeem lost humanity? Is there another way For us to succeed in the mission, to come and rescue the reprobate, to to redeem the lost. Is there another way for us to redeem lost humanity apart from me going to the cross? Is there another way for us to accomplish salvation for all of God's children apart from me going to Calvary's Hill and being momentarily severed away from that sweet Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit? And is there a way for this to happen apart from me having to drink every last drop of the cup of wrath? Is it possible, O Father, for us to save lost people apart from what I'm going to have to experience? Now, friend, when you stop and think about that, this is a tremendous request of Jesus, don't you think? I mean, this is raw sincerity. It's not that he doesn't want to save you. It's just that in this moment, he's asking, is there another way to accomplish that salvation apart from me having to drink the cup? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the cup represents God's holy hostility and his righteous wrath that is poured out against sinners. And Jesus knows that if and when he goes to the cross, he will have to drink every last drop of condemnation. That he literally will take upon himself the hell that you and I needed to experience and deserve to experience. Because God is holy, penalty for sin has to be paid. God cannot just sweep it under the carpet. And yet because he is gracious, he provided the only way for that salvation to take place by giving his one and only son, our savior, Jesus Christ, as our substitute. We cannot understand the redemption of the lost apart from substitutionary atonement that Jesus literally and physically took our place and he absorbed our condemnation. And Jesus drank every last drop of the cup of wrath. And Jesus is simply asking the question, is it possible to redeem lost humanity some other way? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Now this kind of prayer that embodies such raw sincerity 
It flies against the face of easy believism of Christianity in the 21st century. There is a version of Christianity in our day, especially here in America, that seems so wimpy. That seems as if that God is just preoccupied about keeping you wealthy, healthy, and happy. And if that's the depth of God's relationship with humanity, and if, and if God's only preoccupied with keeping you wealthy and healthy and happy, then God the Father owes God the Son a huge apology. Because Jesus endured all of an eternity's worth of condemnation for your sin and mine. So how do you handle the stress and the suffering and the loneliness and the darkness of life? What do you do when there's more month than money? How do you handle it when the cancer comes back? What do you do when life levels against you something that's not happy but horrible? And friend, if your theology can't help you when you need it the most it's bad theology and you don't need it I mean you need a theology that's robust you need a theology that is deep you need a theology that is rooted in the reality of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ and Jesus in this moment on this night he prayed with raw sincerity if it's possible take this from me but he also prayed with radical submission Not my will, but your will be done. I think that makes this the world's toughest prayer. Anybody can pray with raw sincerity. Pagans can pray with raw sincerity. They can tell God what they want God to do and how they want him to intervene and when they want him to act. Even a pagan can say to God, God, this is what you must do. They can pray with raw sincerity. Take this pain away from me. Take this suffering out of my life. Take this agony far from me. They can pray with raw sincerity. But just because you pray with raw sincerity doesn't mean that you pray Christian prayer. Because Christian prayer is not only permeated with raw sincerity, it is punctuated with radical submission. Where the Christ follower says, just like Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. I want your will to be done. Because your way is not only higher than my way, your way is better than my way. And this makes this prayer the world's toughest prayer because it forfeits and aborts selfishness. And at the heart of who we are, we are selfish. If we could peel back the layers that describe the mixed bag of motives of why you and I pray, many of those layers would be nothing more than selfishness. And at the core of sin is selfishness. At the core of all selfishness is sin. And oftentimes, we treat God as if he's a pinata. And we take prayer as if it's the stick. And we think to ourselves, as long as I whack God hard enough, and as long as I beat him numerous enough amount of time, as long as I keep whacking him with this stick of prayer, inevitably he will cave. Inevitably he will give in, and the goodies of God will fall from the skies. And sometimes that's how we perceive God, and that's how we utilize prayer. We think of it as just our way of giving him our grocery list. In fact, it's more than a grocery list. It's a demand list. 
God, this is what you must do. God, this is how you must react. God, this is when you must intervene. This is what I want. And we pray with raw sincerity, asking huge requests of God. And friend, there's nothing wrong with praying with raw sincerity. But it always has to be hitched with radical submission. Because Christian prayer is permeated with raw sincerity and it's punctuated with radical submission. This is how Jesus prayed for more than an hour. He goes back to his disciples and he finds Peter, James, and John asleep. He wakes them and says, men, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Now, before we indict these disciples, we probably should identify with these disciples. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you spent at least an hour in watchful prayer with Jesus? Let me ask it another way. If Jesus were to show up on a random Thursday night of your life, would he find you doing what he told you to do? It's not that these guys were necessarily sinning. They were just sleeping. And why were they sleeping? Because it was late at night. And because they just had a large meal, the Passover meal. Now, ladies, let me ask you a question. When your man gets to the end hours of the day and it's late in the evening and his belly is full and he's just had a good meal, what typically happens? He falls asleep. That's exactly what the disciples did. It was late at night. They had just had a lavish meal called the Passover. They were there. Things were quiet. They were in the garden and they fell asleep. And Jesus comes back to them and he urges them to wake up. He says to keep watch and to pray to stave off temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now this sermon is not about how to defeat temptation. But in this passage, Jesus gives a golden nugget of how you and I can avoid temptation. If you are inundated by temptation, Jesus would just simply say, watch and pray. If you're overcome by temptation, watch and pray. Some of your best weapons, watch and pray. What are you watching for? You're watching for Jesus to come over the horizon. What are you praying for? You're praying, God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Watch and pray. These are great tools and weapons against the onslaught of temptation. And why? Because Jesus says that while your spirit is willing, your flesh is weak. I don't need a show of hands and I don't need any testimonies to know that it's true that all of us could identify with Peter, James, and John. We have a spirit of, of obedience that is willing. We want to do what Jesus calls us to do. We want to do what Jesus tells us to do. If Jesus says, man, your post, stay right here and pray, we want to do our very best to dig in and man our post and pray. We have a spirit that's willing, but we have a flesh that's weak. This old body is so frail. This sinful reality that I walk in and you walk in, it is so fragile. It is so frail. I don't need a show of hands and I don't need testimony. I know it's true in your life. It's true in my life. We have a spirit that longs for obedience. Yet we have a flesh that more times than not gives in to weakness. So Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, and anybody who will listen, watch 
and pray so you can stave off temptation. Jesus goes back and apparently he prays pretty much the same prayer again. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my, not my will, but your will be done. Father, if it's not possible uh, for this cup to be taken from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He pretty much prays the same prayer over and over again. And my question this morning is why? Why does Jesus need to pray practically the same prayer twice? And the answer is because he's furrowing faithfulness into his spirit. He is furrowing faithfulness deep into his spirit. And then it dawns on me that if Jesus, the perfect God-man, has to furrow faithfulness into his spirit, how much more do I have to furrow faithfulness into my spirit? Because I, like you, we are far from the God-man. We are not perfect. We are slaves, oftentimes, to our sinful, weak nature. And if we are so weak, how much more often should we pray the same prayer over and over again? Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed this over and over. He went back to check on the disciples. They were asleep. He did not bother them. He resumed his prayer posture a third time, and the text says he prayed the same thing that he'd been praying before. Jesus prayed this not once or twice, but three times for hours on end. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Father, if it's possible, take this tragedy from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Father, if it's possible, take this hardship from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is furrowing faithfulness deeper and deeper into his spirit. After praying this the third time, he goes and finds his disciples still resting, still sleeping. He wakes them up. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be handed over into the hands of sinners. It's the favorite title that he has of himself, son of man. The hour has come. The cross looms large. The hour has come that the son of man might be delivered to the hands of sinners. Arise, let's go. Because here comes my betrayer. Jesus walked out of the garden of Gethsemane that night and he was totally different than when he walked in. He walked in devastated. He walked out determined. He walked in distraught. He walked out devoted. Now friend, how can you go from being distressed to being devoted? How can you go from being devastated to being determined? How can you do that? How can you move from a spirit of devastation to a spirit of determination? How is that possible? And I just submit to you today, it is possible only through prayer. You can just simply pray like Jesus. Jesus prayed Christian prayer. What is that, you ask? It is prayer that is permeated with raw sincerity, and it's punctuated with radical submission. Father, take this cup from me, but not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, 
but your will be done. Practically speaking, what does this look like in your life and mine? Imagine with me the 27-year-old single woman, and this is her prayer. Father, I desperately want to find that godly guy to spend the rest of my life with. But it seems that he's nowhere to be found. And the prospects are getting fewer and fewer. I've already graduated from high school, already graduated from college. I'm now in the workplace, in the workforce, and it would seem that I'm surrounded by people that don't fit the bill of being a godly guy that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And Lord, you know that I have been praying for this and thinking about this since I was a little girl. Since I was five years old, oh Father, I've been dreaming not only about my wedding day, but my marriage. I, I long to live life with somebody that I love. I long to have a godly guy leading the household. I want us together to have children that know the Lord and love the Lord. And I want us as a family to be able to go on mission trips and do your work. Oh, Father, I desperately want to find Mr. Wonderful. I I want to find the right guy to spend the rest of my life with. But your will be done. And Father, if that means that you want me to be single for the rest of my life, you know I don't want that. But if that's what you want, your will be done. Oh, Father, if if I could do more for the kingdom by being single versus being a wife and a mom, then your will be done. Do you hear that Christian prayer? It's permeated with raw sincerity. It's punctuated with radical submission. It's the prayer of the married couple. And they go to God together and they say, Oh, Father, you know we desperately want to have a child. We've been trying for four years. And nothing's happening. Month after month after month, our hopeful anticipation is dashed. Father, you know all of our friends, they're having beautiful babies. It would seem that promiscuous teenagers are getting pregnant at an alarming rate. Lord, we know that you're the one who opens the womb of a woman. And we don't know why. We don't know why you haven't blessed us with a child because you know that's our heart's desire. We desperately, we want to have a baby. We want to love our very own. We want to nurture our own flesh and blood. We, we, we want to be a mom and a dad. So please, Lord, please answer our prayer. Answer. We know you can do this. But your will be done. And as hard as it is to say, if that means that we will be barren and childless for the rest of our life, so be it. God, that's not what we want. But if that's what you want, your will be done. If you want us to adopt, we'll adopt. If you close every door there, You just want us to pour truth into somebody else's child in a ministry at church or a a parachurch organization. We'll do it. It's not the same, God. It's not the same. But if that's what you want, your will be done. We can't see it, don't quite understand it, but 
but your will be done. Friend, do you hear that Christian prayer? It's permeated with raw sincerity. It's punctuated with radical submission. It's the prayer of the 47-year-old man who goes to God and says, Father, I am too young for pancreatic cancer. I didn't see this one coming. This shocks me. You talk about a sucker punch. This is a sucker punch. I've got a wife and I've got kids. And God, you are able to do immeasurably more than I can ever ask, think, or imagine. So please, rid my body of all cancer because I know you're able to do it. Father, please, let this test be a testimony. Let, let, this, let this mess be a message of how good and gracious you are. Please rid my body of every cancerous cell because I know you can do it. But God, your will be done. And I know that sometimes you heal people by taking them home to heaven and maybe that's your plan. But Father, you've got to promise me that if you take me home to heaven, you've got to take care of my wife and my kids. I want to go to heaven. God, don't misunderstand. I want to go to heaven. I, I just don't know that I want to go right now. There's so much more life to live. So much more to do. But Father, your will be done. Because your way is better than my way. Your will be done. Friend, do you hear that Christian prayer? It's permeated with raw sincerity. It's punctuated with radical submission. It's the prayer of the wife of nearly 22 years when she learned that her husband had been cheating on her for nearly the last 18 months. And she prays to God. Father, I don't know what I want. I don't know what I'm asking for. I mean, this is not what I signed up for, I can tell you that much, God. I promised to be faithful to my spouse. And he promised the same thing to me. But for whatever reason, I'm not good enough. For whatever reason, there, there's somebody else. And God, I don't know what to ask for. I don't know if I, if I need to ask for him to come back or I don't know if I just need to ask for him to get syphilis and gonorrhea and for body parts to fall off. God, I don't know what to pray for. But I know I'm an emotional mess. I know I'm unhappy. I know this is not what I wanted. And God, why? Did you allow this to happen? You could have stopped this. God, we have our children to think about. And obviously he wasn't thinking about them. I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what to do. Some moments I, I can't think of life without him. Other moments I can't think of the future with him. I'm just a mess. So... Your will be done. And I mean that. Your will be done. If you're going to receive more honor and glory by us being reconciled, then your will be done. But I just want you to be glorified. But you got to tell me what step to take. Because I don't know what to do next. Friend, do you hear that Christian prayer?
It's permeated with raw sincerity. It's punctuated by radical submission. It's the man who's almost uh, 15 years from retirement. This is his prayer. Father, you know I would love to have that promotion at work. We need the money. I can do the job. You and I both know I'm the most qualified candidate in the whole bunch. I, I can do the added responsibilities. And, and you know, with, with the children just about to get out of college and get on their own, boy, we could really use some of the extra income. And the other, the youngest one getting up uh, into high school and about to go, Lord, we, we could really use the extra cash flow. So, Lord, please open the door. Just get my foot in the door. Just let me have an interview. I think everything will go well after that. You just provide for me this job. You know that I need it and I want it. And I'm going to give you all the glory and praise for it. Yet not what I want, but what you want. So God, if you don't give me that job, and if we continue to struggle to make ends meet every month, your will be done. If you see something down the pike that if I get this job, it will tempt me to bring shame to your name, I don't want the job. Your will be done. So I need you to help me. Friend, do you hear that Christian prayer? It is permeated with raw sincerity. It's punctuated with radical submission. This is how Jesus prayed. This is how he calls us to pray. My question to you this morning is, do you pray like this? Do you give God raw sincerity and radical submission? It is one thing to pray with raw sincerity. Anybody can do that. But it's purely Christian to pray with radical submission, to say, not my will, but your will be done. And I wonder, is this how you pray? As you follow Jesus, I do need to tell you that your life may not always be happy, but it will be holy. Following Jesus may not make your life carefree, but it will make your life Christ-like. Following Jesus and, and doing what the Lord wants you to do, it will not be absent of suffering, but it will always be accompanied by the Savior. I said last week, and it bears repeating again this week, that uh, God may not keep you from it, but he will keep you through it. He may not keep you from the betrayal, but he will keep you through the betrayal. He may not keep you from the unemployment, but he will keep you through the unemployment. He may not keep you from the death of a loved one, but he will keep you through the death of a loved one. He may not keep you from experiencing COVID-19, but he will keep you through experiencing COVID-19. He may not keep you from the sadness, but he will keep you through the sadness. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. We read that while Jesus was on earth, he offered prayers and petitions to the Father with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. God the Father heard the prayer of God the Son, and Jesus was not kept from the cross, but he was kept through the cross. He was not kept from the grave, but he was kept through the grave. 
He was not kept from death, but he was kept through death. So because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, you and I can pray like Jesus and live like Jesus and serve like Jesus and die like Jesus. And you and I can have faithfulness on our lips because it is furrowed into our spirit just like Jesus furrowed faithfulness into his spirit. So before I sit down, let me just remind you that I heard an old, old story how a savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning and his precious blood atoning. Then I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him and all my love is doing. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. This morning I came to tell you I have the victory because of Jesus Christ. This morning I came to tell you that I have success because of Jesus Christ. This morning I came to tell you I have faithfulness because of Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed like this in the garden and this prayer now only ought to be found on the lips of Jesus but also on your lips and mine because we have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning I ask, is this how you pray? Is this how you pray? Are your prayers permeated with raw sincerity and punctuated with radical submission. If not, today uh, can be the start of that new kind of prayer. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Today can be the day when you pray unto him, oh God, please forgive me of my sin. I surrender my life to you. For I believe that you were Nailed on the cross for my sins, you were buried in my grave. And on the third day, you were raised from the dead, and I trust you. And I believe in you today can be the day of your salvation. But maybe you're here today, maybe you're listening today, and you are a believer. You've been walking with the Lord for a long time. But there's a situation, a scenario, there's a crisis, there's a concern that's in your life. And you don't know what to do with it. Today, I want you to pray. Don't pray like a pagan. Pray like a Christian. How does a Christian pray? A Christian prays with raw sincerity and radical submission. So this morning, pray to a wonderful Savior who gives you victory beyond victory. Because though he was crucified on a criminal's cross, he was raised from the dead to give you everlasting hope, life, and peace. So let your prayer be like Jesus. May your prayer be permeated with raw sincerity and punctuated with radical submission. Heavenly Father, we pray to you and in this holy moment, we give you all of the concerns of our heart. We describe them in very raw, real ways. And Father, we ask for you to help us to pray with radical submission where we say, not our will, but your will be done. In Jesus' name we ask it.